And this morning, uh, we're going to do what is essentially part two. And in part two, we're examining what do we need in life to experience the good life. Jesus talks about the good life a ton. He uses language of either the kingdom of heaven uh, or eternal life. And one of the things that Kyle said last week is eternal life is more than just the length of time, but the quality of time. Not just the quantity, the amount of it that you get, but the quality of it. And so, in some sense, eternal life is not just something we get when we die, but something we begin to experience now. So when Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, he's not talking just when you die, he's talking now. Question, how do we, how do we get that good life? In some ways it define, depends on how you define what the good life is. So last week, Kyle looked at the woman at the well, and we saw that this is a woman who is looking to find the good life in relationships, and she's chasing it over and over and over again. And Jesus comes to her and says, you're thirsty woman, and I can give you the kind of life that you desire that once you receive it, you'll never thirst again. And one of the themes that you'll see woven throughout this series is Jesus is talking at one level and we're talking at another level. And the woman at the well totally misses what Jesus is saying. Today, we'll look at a crowd that totally misses it. Next week, uh, the story of Pilate and the conversation that Jesus has about the good life and they totally miss each other. The last week, Nicodemus totally missing each other. And so before we start uh, this second installment, I want to pray again. Uh, And I I want you to be praying as well. The things that we talk about when we begin talking about the good life are hard to understand. And the testimony of the scriptures show that it's very possible for even Jesus, the best communicator in the world, to speak in ways that we just miss it. And so let's pray that the Holy Spirit could help us uh, in the next 40 minutes or so uh, to see what it is that God wants to teach us this morning. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we do believe that your word is helpful and that it's sufficient for us, that it contains the words of life, that if believed, we would experience all of the joy and satisfaction and fulfillment that you have designed us to experience. But Lord, we realize that the scriptures can be seen and not understood. Lord, guard us this morning from failing to see, failing to hear in ways that we would understand or feel. Lord, we don't want to be just hearers of the word. We also want to be doers of the word. And so, Lord, I pray that the time that we spend uh, in this particular story would be transformative for us. That your spirit would move in us to illuminate truth that would transform us. That we would be shaped by the words of Jesus. That it would have an impact on the way that we look at life because of what Jesus has said, and what he has done. And so, Lord, we ask that you would lead us into paths of righteousness and paths of satisfaction. 
believe that at your right hand lie pleasures forevermore. Lord, help us to hold and grasp onto it this morning. I pray that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can open up your Bible to John chapter 6. We're going to look at 6, or no, we're going to look at chapter 6. We're going to look at four truths out of John chapter 6. And you should know just by the beginning of the book of John, Jesus has already started to generate quite the buzz about who he is and what he's doing. If you've read the whole book of John, which I would encourage you to do, um, you'll know that up through chapters 1 through 6, Jesus has, has done some crazy things five chapters into um, the book. Jesus has already turned water into wine. It's his first miracle, which always blows my mind that he chooses to make wine as his first miracle, knowing that in 2,000 years there would be certain denominations that would find that simple act so offensive. What is Jesus having to do with alcohol? But he does it, and one crowd loves it. I'm guessing another crowd is thinking, ah, uh, let's, not, let's not have anything to do with it. Later on, we find that Jesus ends up healing two different people, at least, that we know of. He heals a official's son, a little boy. He also heals a disabled man. The disabled man had been uh, disabled for 38 years. I tell you what, if if anybody in here has the ability to heal, and, and, or maybe even if you don't have the ability to heal, but you go up to someone who's disabled in a wheelchair, and you tell that person to get up, whether he does or doesn't, something's going, about your reputation is going to spread. There's the guy who healed the man, or there's the guy who told that disabled man to get up, and it didn't happen. Either way, news of you is going to start spreading around. And the news of Jesus is spreading as he went to Jerusalem. We have this scene of him forming a whip out of some ropes and chasing some small business owners out of the temple. I mean, that, that's, that's, there's so many strange things that Jesus is doing. My point is that at this point in John chapter 6, Jesus has already created a little bit of a reputation for himself. There is a buzz about Jesus. There's a group of people who love him because he's doing miracles. There's a group of people who want to kill him because he says that he's the son of God uh, and he's done certain miracles on the Sabbath. And so my first point that I want to draw us attention to as we begin looking at verse uh, 1 is that the crowd is not the goal. John chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. After this, this is sort of like after all of the things, chapters 1 through 5. After this, Jesus crossed over uh, to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd uh, kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Let's pay attention first thing to the crowd. How big is this crowd? Huge is the answer. We'll find out a little bit later that the actual size is 5,000 men, um, maybe 15,000, 20,000 total if you consider women and children, which you should. This is a big crowd. If Jesus had planted a church in that moment, he would have a huge mega church all in one, one uh, venue. If Jesus had uh, church growth gurus surrounding the time, they would have come to Jesus and said, Jesus, what's your secret? How in the world are you drawing so many people? What's the secret to attract the crowd? 
the text gives us the answer to it. Why did the crowd gather? Because they saw the miracles that he was doing. Because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. So unless you have the ability to heal the sick, this is not going to be the strategy that we can employ at Keystone to draw a crowd. But as you'll see later on, I'm making the point here, the crowd is not the goal. Because this is actually the, the, the scene uh, in a couple of verses here that Jesus is going to do another miracle for them. The, the 5,000 people that are this huge crowd uh, in John chapter 6, verses 3 through 13 uh, this is the crowd of people that Jesus is going to perform the feeding of the 5,000. Chapter 6 is a long chapter. I'm not going to read everything in it, so I'll just summarize this section. The crowd is gathering to him because he can, he can heal the sick. And so they want to be with him. That's a, I mean, if, if Jesus was here and you knew he could heal you, you would come to him. And this crowd is coming to Jesus to find healing. And when they come to Jesus, Jesus performs another miracle for them. They're hungry. There's no way to feed them. They can't go out and buy. It would, it would, I forget how many, 200 some days wages. A, a huge portion of money would need to be required to provide food for all of these people. And so Jesus performs a miracle with two fish, five loaves, feeds the multitude. It's a story that you might be familiar with. And when Jesus does the miracle to the people who are seeking him for miracles, a great thing happens. John chapter 14 verse, or John 6, 14. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, what's the miraculous sign? Feeding the 5,000. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely He is the prophet we have been expecting. Now this is amazing. Because not only has Jesus now drawn a crowd, performing miracles, healing the sick, feeding the hungry. People are coming to him looking for a miracle. And what does Jesus do? He provides a miracle. And then the crowd, seeing that Jesus performs the miracle, says, Surely, this is the prophet. You know that the Old Testament talks about a Messiah coming? This is it. Jesus is the answer to all that we've been seeking. You know, last week when Kyle talked about the woman at the well, the woman at the well was seeking the good life in men, and Jesus' message to her is, if you want to find the good life, you have to come to me. I am living water. And it seems like this crowd has maybe gotten that memo. They've said, okay, the good life, good health, being well fed. How do I get it? I'm going to come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus is going to get me healing. Coming to Jesus is going to get me fed. Coming to Jesus is going to meet my needs. All the comforts that I desire, he's going to give me that I can consume. And so there's a sense of us that might think, okay, this is a great strategy for Jesus. Draw the crowd, impress them with the miracles. Here they are. They believe that he is the Messiah. This crowd believes Jesus is the Messiah. In a second, we'll realize that this crowd wants to make Jesus king. On the surface, it sounds like this is exactly what Jesus' plans would be. 
draw a crowd. Get them to believe. And we'd have a ministry success. What happens in 15? John 6, 15. When the crowd saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet that we've been expecting. Verse 15, when Jesus saw that the crowd was ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. And that is interesting, to me anyway. You've got a crowd of people who came seeking a miracle. What does Jesus do? He performs some miracles. And then when the crowd says, I, you are the Messiah, you are the prophet, we want you to be our king. What does Jesus do? <laughs> he slips away. In a sense, he's saying, I don't want to be a part of a crowd that wants to make me that kind of Lord or that kind of Savior. For Jesus, the crowd is not the goal. We're going to find what the goal is later on, but at least we can find from this statement that he slips away means to me that the crowd is not the most important thing to him. And that's true at Keystone as well. The crowd is not the most important thing for us at Keystone. The crowd is not the goal at Keystone. Now, we have a crowd. This is a crowd. It's a summertime crowd, but it's a crowd. And there's going to be another crowd that comes in a little bit of time, about an hour. On a typical Sunday morning, we'll have about four to 500 people as a crowd. Another 100, 150, maybe 200 kids in classrooms. There are 900 people who call Keystone their home church. That's a crowd. But the crowd is not the goal. The crowd is not the goal for us at Keystone. Because I think you have to dig a little bit deeper to understand why has the crowd gathered? If you walk into Lancaster City on a first Friday, you can find all different types of crowds. Sometimes their crowd is gathered for a good reason. There's a food truck, and it has the best ice cream you have ever eaten. It's a good crowd. Sometimes crowds are gathered around fights. Sometimes crowds are gathered around fires. Just because you see a crowd doesn't necessarily mean that something good is happening. And just because you see a crowd, maybe a keystone, doesn't mean that that's necessarily a good thing. You have to ask the question, why is the crowd here? Why is the crowd here? And this is a question that you can ask both yourselves and uh, people after the service. Ask people, what's brought you to Keystone? What brought you to Keystone? And maybe what's kept you at Keystone? I love asking those questions. Whenever we do our connections class, the group of new people that gather, um, well, it's coming up in September. I'll ask them, new people, what, what brought you to Keystone? And, and what's, what's kept you at Keystone long enough to be, have you be able to take this little class? I bet there would be all different types of answers in here. And I think you should ask. What, what's brought you to Keystone? What's kept you at Keystone? What's brought me to Keystone? I'm glad you asked. Uh, 2000, or no, 1999, uh, I had a friend invite me on a senior high ski trip. I started to become part of the Keystone crowd because... I like to ski. And um, I started to attend on Sunday nights because all my friends were there and Keystone had the prettiest girls. Uh, 
that I knew of, anyway. Are those good reasons? Is that a good reason to join the crowd? If Keystone was able to attract junior guys in high school with skiing and pretty girls, would we say, you know what, Keystone's really doing some fine work down there in the youth ministry. I should go and pat Kyle on the back for drawing out all of these kids, attracting them. No, obviously we would say, no, that's not the point. Right? And the, the, the crowd is not the goal. And so we need to keep reading here uh, to find what's going on. My second point that I'll draw our attention to, the sign is not the point. I know they sound similar. The crowd is not the goal. The sign is not the point. As we read John 6, 26, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. When Jesus slipped away from the crowd, the crowd followed him. They sought him and in some ways wanted an explanation And Jesus gives them the explanation of of why he chose to distance himself from the crowd. Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you. The only reason you want to be with me is because I have something to offer you. Your conception of the good life is being well fed and healed. And Jesus is saying, that's not the ultimate point of why I'm here. The sign for us is not the point. You understand this, the scriptures, when it talks about miracles, oftentimes you'll see the word sign being used. Uh, the NLT, I think, uses the, the phrase miraculous signs. Uh, yeah, perfect. Understood the miraculous signs. Well, a sign is not the point. Like, when, when you visit a store, you see the sign out front. But the sign is not the point. The store is the point. The sign is just pointing to the point. Making sense? Like, if you needed to use the restroom, it'd be important for you not to confuse the sign for the point. The restroom sign points to the point. It's not the point. And Jesus is saying, crowd, the only reason that you want to be with me is because I fed you. But me feeding you, the miraculous sign, it's not the point. And I think that's an important word for us because at Keystone, we would agree with that. At Keystone, we would say the sign is not the point here. And I mean that because I do believe that God has done miraculous signs at Keystone. Now, none of the pastoral staff have the ability to heal, and none of us have the ability to multiply loaves and fishes. God has the ability, and he has done miraculous things in the lives of people at Keystone. And we have couples in the auditorium, coming second service, who have seen God provide miraculous blessings in their life. Supernatural type of blessings. Now, let me describe some of them. Some of, the, some of them, 
the couples have been praying and praying and praying and praying for years to have a kid. They couldn't have a kid for years. And they come to Jesus and pray and come to Jesus and pray and come to Jesus and pray. And God has answered that prayer. Their kids are in uh, our classrooms. We have couples who were on the brink of divorce. On the brink of divorce. They had cheated on each other. They had hurt each other. They had filed for divorce, had wanted to separate. And they chose one last ditch effort to seek counseling. And they come to see that God has supernaturally given them the ability to confess, forgive, show grace. And couples, that it blows my mind that that God would heal that relationship. The relationships have been healed. People like that at Keystone. Some of you might have been around when we've done our Jesus Salvage Shop series. Uh, It's a series where we showcase the fact that God has rebuilt the brokenness at Keystone in lots of different people. We've got people who have been raped and have come out on the other side. We have people who have been healed of cancer. People who have been freed from addictions. God does miraculous things in the lives of people at Keystone. But I need to remind us, the sign is not the point. The sign is not the point. Because can I tell you, I get a little bit nervous when we start talking about the miraculous signs that Jesus does. The miraculous things that he does to bring a child, to restore a relationship, to bring a job, to bring healing. I believe 1,000% that God has the power to do miraculous things. But I get nervous if it feels like we're making that the point. So when we do our salvage shop series, I feel a little nervous that all of our stories have good endings. They all have a happily ever after. And if we do another salvage shop series, I'm going to try to work in a story with it that doesn't have the neat folded up, put a little bow on it story at the end. And so that that person's testimony can be, yeah, didn't work out, but here I am. Because the sign is not the point. And whenever I see or hear a testimony about how they came to Christ, I asked Jesus into their heart, and then their life got a whole lot better. I want to be like, oh, but that, that's not the point. And whenever I see the hashtag blessed, hashtag God is good posts, I'm like, yes, that's true. God is good. And we have been blessed. What kind of message are we sending to the crowd if we make that the point? It's possible to draw a crowd if we offer the truths that God loves to give good gifts to his children. That God supplies miracles. That God can reconcile marriages. That God, if we pray to him and go to him, it, it, there's enough truth in it that it gets me nervous that we're falling into some sort of prosperity theology. Prosperity theology is a simple idea that God always wants us to be healthy, wealthy, wise, or whatever the saying goes. That God always wants us to be happy. 
And if we're not happy, it's because we don't either have enough faith or we haven't been praying in the most powerful ways. And, and the, the prosperity theology would say, you can get your best life now if only you had enough faith. And there's a part of me that says, there's, there's some truth in what they're saying I do believe that as we conform our lives to the pattern that God has created the world to function in, that we will find flourishing. We'll find that if we operate under God's principles for a healthy marriage, that our marriage will be healthier than if we just did whatever we wanted to and treated people like garbage. Wouldn't you imagine? It's good to show when Jesus says, forgive your neighbor a thousand times. That's a tip that's going to be helpful for you to have an endearing and enduring marriage. And so I do believe that coming to Jesus and following Jesus is going to produce some amount of satisfaction in our lives. But I want to say that's not the point. A healthy marriage, a fruitful family, a lucrative job, they may be blessings that we receive at Keystone, but the sign is not the point. The end of chapter um, 20 in the book of John, we get the point for miracles. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, which is encouraging for me. I just find it frustrating in some sense that there are tomes and volumes and countless autobiography, well, never not autobiography, biographies on people like Abraham Lincoln and Benjamin Franklin and Whomever there are, there's lots been written about these people, but I just, I feel like we've got four short gospel accounts. There's just not a whole lot written about the life of Jesus. It's encouraged me to to know. Jesus did many other signs that aren't recorded here. So in case you're wondering, is this all Jesus did? It's not. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written here. But, all right, the author's going to give us a reason that these are included, but... These are written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The point of the miracle is to point us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. the miracle of the bread, the miracle of the healing. These are signs that point that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that if we would believe that he is the Son of God, we would have, experience, we would have life in his name, not in his things. The miracle is to point to a greater reality. The point of the miracle is not Things, the point of the miracle is the Savior. It's not a coincidence that Jesus chose to feed the 5,000 at this time of year. The Passover is happening around this time. And in the Passover, the Jews, the crowd, would have been preparing to sacrifice a lamb, kill a lamb. Because to them it would have symbolized and remembered the fact that it was the lamb that was killed that saved them from the final plague of death when they were slaves in Egypt. 
And God commanded them to kill this lamb and to cover their household. And if their household was covered in the blood of the lamb, they would be saved from death. And then they would eat the flesh of this lamb before going out into the wilderness, into the unknown. And then they would have remembered their time after escaping from Egypt, their time in the wilderness. They would have remembered the fact that God met all of their needs in the wilderness. He sent manna from heaven. He sent down meat when they were looking for meat. He provided them water. God supplied them. But all of these Old Testament signs were pointing to the fact that there's a God in heaven who loves them. And now Jesus, when he comes around the Passover time, he performs miracles that invite us and invite you as students of the Bible to go back into the Old Testament and to consider when Jesus says, well, I don't want to see any thunder. We'll get to what he says in a second. When he says what he says, why is it so significant? The sign is not the point. Third point. Good things are not the good life. Good things are not the good life. And we're just going to continue reading John 6, 26 to 27. We'll pick it up in chapter 27. He says, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. Don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. The crowd is coming to Jesus, and he knows they're only seeking him because he can give food. And he says, don't be, co- don't be so concerned about food. Don't be so concerned about perishable things. I love the word perishable, because to me that, that invites some imagery that I think is helpful. Jesus is saying, you are so consumed with perishable things. Perishable things don't last. Last week, I bought some nectarines. I, I think a, a nice ripe nectarine might be the best fruit ever. The problem is, is that the difference between a rock-hard nectarine and a rotted nectarine is like two hours. Like, the window of being able to enjoy a perfect nectarine is just so, it's so small. Nectarines, they perish quickly. Uh, This week, I found the one uh, that was left in a bag and I was so brokenhearted about the fact that I had missed out. It was so good earlier in the week, and now I, I, I wasted it. Now, hopefully you would say, Brandon, um, nectarines, that's just what happens. That's what they are. They're fruit, and part of the nature of fruit is that they spoil after an amount of time. There's nothing wrong with the nectarine itself. It's just that's, that's what happens. And if I said, well, I'm going to go on a crusade to find every... Uh, nectarine that's in season. I'm going to invest my life into traveling the globe, and I don't know where nectarines grow. I guess locally sometimes too, but um, you would say, Brandon, that's a waste of time. Because uh, nectarines might be good, but they're not that good. And you're going to spend a lot of money, invest a lot of time finding that uh, the thing that you desire is not going to meet your needs. Hopefully you would say that to me. So I'm not going on that crusade, but Nectarines are perishable. And one of the reasons that good things is, are not the good life 
is because they don't last. And one of the reasons that Jesus, in some ways, distanced himself from that crowd is because he doesn't want to be the genie who is used to, get, to give things to a people that won't last. Jesus is saying, the point of me feeding you is not the point. In some ways, because the good things that I just gave you are not the good life. The sign is pointing to something better. And the good thing that I just gave you is a reminder to you that your heart was made for something more. Jesus says to the crowd, and he says to us, don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. Jesus says good things are not the good life. We would say that true at Keystone. Although I think generally, just knowing a little bit about our crowd, that's not a new concept for us. I think we're a fairly conservative bunch. You know, I don't see many people chasing yachts and mansions and that's not that's not keystone uh in fact if we read and we you can read ecclesiastes chapter two he's looking for the good life and he's looking for the good life under the sun not including the fact that there's a god in the universe and as he he looks at all of the greatest things he looks at uh he lists off big homes uh, he lists off beautiful women. He, uh, read Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's excessive. And I think a lot of us in here would say, yeah, Brandon, that's excessive. Of course, the good life does not come through excess. I, I think that we might not be surprised about a quote from a celebrity like Jim Carrey. Uh, Jim Carrey's quoted as saying this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed, dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Now, you, maybe you're thinking, oh, wow, Jim Carrey. Uh, I know he's, he had a lot of success in the, the, the 90s. I haven't seen much about him lately. Well, he tasted success, and so one of the things that he's realized is that it wasn't the answer. And of course, those of us who've grown up in church are like, I could have told Jim Carrey that. I could have I told him that all the money in the world and all the fame in the world wasn't going to bring him the happiness that he craved. We're not maybe surprised when we see celebrities who on the surface look like they have everything this world has to offer. We're we're not necessarily surprised when we find out that they live in depression and commit suicide. Because we're part of a church and we understand that the good life does not consist of the good things that we have. The good life cannot be obtained through good things. So if someone has all the good things in the world, that's not going to necessarily bring them the good life. We, I think, at Keystone know this. I've got one more quote. It's a little long, um, and it's a little dated, too. It came out of uh, an article in 1990, but it's good. I think this crowd is at least going to know the names at the top. I pity celebrities. I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand. I'm going to have to change those names probably for second service. Uh, These were all once perfect, pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten, practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. 
You see Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing, that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with a personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. And they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. We're thinking, yeah, oh, I get that. We would say at Keystone, yeah, of course. Like, good things are not the key to a good life. You might actually even have a little neat uh, slogan because you've heard Keith or Charlie use it before. Um, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I think that's true. And it's one thing for us to be able to repeat it in front of other people. It's another thing for us to believe that. Jesus says, don't be concerned, so concerned about things that are perishable. I want to say, there are likely perishable things that are consuming you. Your life has perishable things that you are concerned about. Maybe deeply concerned about. And depending upon how concerned you are about them might reveal whether or not you really are coming to Jesus for Jesus or coming to Jesus hoping that he will give you the perishable thing that you need. I said we're a conservative bunch. Maybe the only thing you really want is you just want a wife who will love you, some kids who will respect you, um, and a a retirement that when you can't work anymore uh, that you'll have enough in the bank account. Maybe that's... But do you need that? Simply. How much can be taken from you until you start to question whether or not God really loves you or not? How much can be taken away from you? If you believe that Jesus plus nothing, he was everything, the answer should be everything. Jesus can take everything away from me, and I will still have everything. If we believe that good things are not the good life, it could be that there's still part of us that believes I need a couple of good things for a good life. Just a couple of good things. Not much, but just a couple of good. And the problem is if that thinking still is a part of us as believers, we're going to see that we still display envy and jealousy. That's, in fact, one of the ways that you can identify the good things that you need for you to have a good life. What do you get envious about? What do you get jealous about? What, what do you experience deep fear and deep anxiety about? That if you lost these things, you would be ruined because the deep fear and deep anxiety are signs that there might be things, good things, good things in your life that you think you need to have the good life. Discontentment, depression, 
that there are things within the Christian life that give us an indication that not all of us who would say the equation, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, believe it fully yet. And my concern in the, the crowd not being the goal, the sign not being the point, the good things not being the good life, my, my final point is that fans are not followers. It may be that Keystone has a crowd because we have a lot of fans. God has been especially generous to us. We have all kinds of opportunities. And you may have all that you need or all the time you think you need to get what you need. And so you come to Keystone not because you're necessarily a follower, but maybe just because you're a fan. Jesus has some words for us, 6, 47 to 51. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats of this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I offer to the world, uh, which I offer so the world may live, is my flesh. Jesus' words to us are, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors, they were in the wilderness, and the only way they were able to survive the challenges and difficulties of being in the wilderness is because there was a Father in heaven who supplied them with bread from heaven to nourish them physically that they could live. Jesus is saying, that's, that's a physical level. I'm talking at a spiritual level. And just as your physical bodies need bread, need sustenance to survive, your soul needs me. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the thing that your soul craves and your soul needs. If you want to have your soul live, not just have your body live, but have your soul live, you need to eat me. You need to eat my flesh. You need to drink my blood. You need to take all of me and my life into yours. You need to not just pick and choose what you want from me. You have to take all of me into your life. Jesus says, anyone who eats of the bread of heaven will never die. Anyone who believes has eternal life. What is the good life? The good life is to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And if we would believe him, that is to eat him, 
to find him to be satisfaction, to find him to be fulfilling, well, then that is all that we need. There's a difference between a fan and a follower. It's interesting. Uh, after, this, after Jesus gets done giving them his explanation, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Jesus starts with a crowd. He does some miracles. And the crowd stays. Jesus leaves. Crowd chases. Jesus preaches a message about what is the true source of life, eternal life, quality of life, quantity of life. And the crowd leaves. See, the crowd was not there for Jesus. They were there for food. They wanted the physical level. For them, the good life was solely sufficient in good things. And if, I, if they weren't getting the good things, they didn't want Jesus. Jesus keeps going. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. There's a dichotomy here. There was a crowd of fans and then there's a a few remaining faithful followers. The remaining faithful followers are there because they realize that there is no other place they can go to find life. They believe Jesus is the bread of life. And what's so great is that, and one of the reasons I think it's important for us to not just draw a crowd but to create disciples is that as Christianity becomes more and more difficult to be blessed because of. In other words, it could be that maybe you're a part of church because you want people to respect you. Maybe you're a part of this church because you're, you're seeking to find better marriage or more obedient kids. Or There are a lot of good reasons. Maybe you're here simply because you're looking for uh, a spouse. What happens when you don't get those things, when being a part of church doesn't grant you respect, in fact, maybe it grants you shame, when people find out what you think uh, about sexuality, what they, you think about any of the cultural issues, if, if, if your Christianity now brings you shame and disrespect, are we okay with that? If you're a fan, you're going to go elsewhere because you need your respect. You need something else. You, you might leave. A follower is going to say, we believe he has the words of eternal life. And no matter what difficulty we face, we're going to stand firm because there's no other place that we can go. I want to pray for us before we um, uh, continue to worship. Lord, I know 100% that Unless your spirit 